I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth Admission. San Francisco District Attorney Chase Bodine has been on the job for about 10 months now and never anticipated his first year in office would coincide with a global pandemic. I talked to Bodine on October 30th about his approach to rampant drug dealing in the Tenderloin and South of Market, his relationship with the San Francisco Police Department, and the sense among some San Franciscans that he is not prosecuting violent crime to the fullest extent. District Attorney Bodine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Heather. Great to be back on. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we were just discussing you did not bring sourdough bread this time. We're sadly having to do it on Zoom these days. Next time we're in person, I'll have sourdough, <laughs> and that's a promise. Okay, great. So, um, of course, when you were sworn in in January, nobody had any idea what 2020 was going to turn out to be. And I was just wondering if you can kind of sum up how your 10 months in office so far have gone, you know, coupled with this terrible COVID-19 pandemic and everything else we've seen in 2020. How are things going for you? Well, Heather, there's absolutely no way that I or anyone else could have predicted what 2020 would bring. And I think the year really has been defined for all of us personally and professionally by the uncertainty uh, brought on by primarily COVID-19, but also so many other developments uh, locally and across the country that were unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has been a major challenge for me and for the office and for the entire city to respond and to lead. Um, And I think by and large, San Francisco has done a great job uh, navigating this crisis. Of course, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, and for me personally, it's made what was already a really challenging job that much more challenging, worrying about the, uh, the physical health and well-being of all of my staff every day, of the folks who come to work in the courthouse, figuring out how to continue um, moving criminal cases towards trial and resolution when most of our courtrooms are shut down. It's, it's made every single thing we do more challenging, more complicated, and yet at the same time, um, in some ways, even more urgent. Mm-hmm. So it's been, it's been challenging, and it's been a steep learning curve environment, which is my favorite place to be. That's good. What would you say so far are the highs and the lows of the job? The lows are the sort of sad reality that by the time we get involved in cases, especially serious cases like homicides or sexual assaults, the damage that's been done cannot be undone. We can't bring people back. We can't undo the trauma. And it's just a constant frustration for me. And I know for my lawyers, my victim uh, service division staff, and of course, for many of the survivors of crime that we work with, um, no matter what we do in a criminal case, the harm that's been done in those kinds of serious cases just doesn't get undone. And I I live with that every day because I meet with crime victims Mm -hmm. and survivors of serious crimes um, as a regular ongoing part of my job, sometimes multiple times in a single day. Um, The highs have been those instances where through teamwork and collaboration, we've been able to break through and and really come up with better ways of getting our job done. Sometimes those are little bureaucratic things, technological breakthroughs, uh, improvements in communication with other departments. And sometimes it's finding a resolution to a case that really provides satisfaction and closure to crime victims, while also setting the defendant on a path to accountability and a change in their behavior. Um, That's not every case. Mm -hmm. I wish it were. And when we get there, it certainly stands out as high points. Mm Why do you think there's such a trend toward electing reform-centered prosecutors? I know you and former San Francisco District Attorney George Gascon and some others just founded the Prosecutors Alliance of California. Um, why do you think that this movement is, is taking hold? I think there's a number of reasons. You know, the 
the movement that got me elected in San Francisco in um, what I think you've described as a close race accurately, it's a really close race, a four-way race, um, that movement has been something we've seen not just in San Francisco, but across the country. And we've seen it grow even in the years since I was elected. There's a number of reasons for it. First and foremost, it's the fact that we've got three, four, maybe even five decades of tough on crime policies that have been experimented with all across the country with virtually no empirical support, no hard evidence showing that adding an extra five or 10 years to a prison sentence accomplishes legitimate public safety goals or provides victims with a greater sense of justice or healing. And yet we've done that kind of blindly for, for decades. And I think folks at every level of society are fed up with it. They're fed up with the fiscal cost, um, it's bankrupting our state and local governments. They're fed up with the, the human cost, the ways that it tears families and communities apart. And I think they're fed up with the fact that it is um, really providing victims in many cases with hollow satisfaction. We don't even have the money in our criminal justice system to pay for broken car windows, much less the kind of therapy or uh, income replacement that folks need after much more serious crimes. And yet we seem to have endless amounts of money for punishment. Mm -hmm. So the desire I think from a lot of people is not that we stop having punishment be part of what we do, but that we think more broadly about justice and accountability, that we stop equating justice or victims' rights simply with punishment. But that'd be one part of a broader, more complicated conversation. That's the demand that we see uh, really all across the country. And it's what's leading to elections of folks on a progressive uh, campaign agenda from coast to coast. We see it all across the country. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about a, another major crisis that's hit um, San Francisco and only grown worse this year, which is drug overdoses. Um, the medical examiner now says there are 527 people who've died in the city um, this year through September, um, which is, uh, you know, a huge jump from last year and the year before. That's largely being driven by fentanyl. And I was wondering if you can describe what usually happens when police officers, usually in the Tenderloin, arrest drug dealers, and then the case goes to your office. And then what are you usually doing? Sure. Um, well, first of all, let me just say that crisis is a really serious one, and it's not limited to San Francisco. You know, I think, as you just pointed out, all across the country, we are seeing an increase in overdoses and overdoses leading to death. Uh, primarily from fentanyl. Um, it's a trend, I think, exacerbated by easy access to more potent uh, drugs and also by the kind of social isolation and the social misery that are brought on by the economic collapse and the um, social distancing orders in 2020. So it's a problem we're trying to address in San Francisco, along with every other major city in the country, and we're not doing nearly enough. Um, to answer your question, when police make an arrest, it's usually um, someone in the Tenderloin or Soma or Mission District, uh, that's where most of our drug sales or possession for sale cases come from. And when the police bring us one of those cases, in approximately 80% of those cases, we will file felony charges against that individual. Now, at that initial court appearance, it's called an arraignment, we will, in every case, in every drug sale case, we will ask the judge to impose a stay away order, an order that prohibits on penalty of a new criminal charge, the defendant from going back to the area where they were arrested. 
Um, the particular details of those stay away orders depend on the particular facts of the case. Mm -hmm. But we do ask for one in every single case as a matter of course. Is it usually the corner or number of blocks or how big is the area usually? So this is something that often gets litigated. And um, we usually ask for bigger areas, bigger, larger distances uh, from the corner or the part of the block. And the defense attorneys usually ask for narrower distances. And the judge makes a decision in a case-by-case -case basis. So if defense counsel is able to persuade the judge that their client um, has to go to that area for housing or for services, it's going to be a much smaller area. If there's no uh, lawful purpose for the defendant to be in the area, usually we persuade judges to give us as much as 150 yards in circumference from the point of their arrest or observed sale. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the usual uh, path. I think virtually every single, if not 100% of the defendants facing drug sales charges have a stay away order in place. And many of them will violate those stay away orders. And when they do, we file new criminal charges for violations of the stay away order. The stay away orders are an important law enforcement tool, uh, not only to deter people from going back to the same area and engaging in repeat conduct, but also because when there is a stay away order and police are aware of it, it allows them to stop and search people, potentially seizing drugs, weapons, um, or proceeds from illicit drug sales. And so that's an important part of our ongoing effort to disrupt the drug sales. But it's, it's really in the wheelhouse of the traditional war on drugs tactics. Now, uh, despite my constant um, condemnation of the failings of the war on drugs, which I stand by. Our office has continued to charge, as I said, over 80% of the drug sales or possession for sales felony cases the San Francisco Police Department brings us. It's actually um, in some ways depressing, but in Q3 of 2020, drug sales or possession for sale cases accounted for fully 23% of the cases my office filed. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the highest percentage for any third quarter in any year since 2014. Wow. It's a huge problem because it's distracting resources away from other areas of violent crime or crimes that have more direct victims named in the charging document, for example. And nevertheless, it's not making an impact on the ground. And anybody who walks through SOMA or the Tenderloin these days uh, knows that it's not making an impact. One of the problems is the kinds of cases that we get um, from the police are almost exclusively crumbs, a few pills, a few rocks, very low level um, dealers who are essentially fungible to the networks that are bringing drugs into our city. I've been really consistent and really public in my request that the police focus more resources on upstream arrests, that we start looking for kilos rather than crumbs. But I could count on one hand the number of cases we've been presented by the San Francisco Police Department since I took office, where we had any serious quantity of drugs mm. seized. So when you do um, ask for the stay away order, then what usually happens? Are these cases going to trial or pleading out or what happens after that? Most of these cases, like most cases in criminal courts across the country, don't go to trial. In fact, about 98% of criminal cases in San Francisco and in virtually every other jurisdiction in the country resolve before a trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, some cases go to trial, um, some drug cases go to trial, but it's a very uncommon category of case to go to trial. Um, so most of the time, the cases go through a preliminary hearing mm -hmm. where defense counsel will usually argue some sort of a motion to suppress issue, and the cases then are negotiated for some sort of a stipulated 
uh, plea disposition. Mm-hmm. What do those usually entail? Probation or? Really depends on the individual mm-hmm. um, and on their priors. So if we have someone who has no prior contacts, for example, if they've avoided um, violating the terms of the stayaway order during the time they've been out of custody pending trial, for example, sometimes these cases take more than a year to litigate. That's actually normal for cases in San Francisco of all categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if they if they if their first arrest, no priors, um, then absolutely probation is appropriate. The truth is that even after trial, in those few cases that go to trial, San Francisco judges are very unlikely to give uh, prison sentences or even custodial sentences to folks accused of a first offense or even a second offense drug sale. And so our leverage, even if we wanted to send people accused of selling drugs to prison is pretty limited by the realities of San Francisco juries and San Francisco judges. Um, I don't think there's a, a much, much appetite on the bench in San Francisco for sending people to prison for selling drugs. And as a result, if we ask for prison time in a drug sale case without some significant aggravating factors, um, that case will necessarily go to trial and it will compete with a homicide or a sexual assault for that courtroom. Particularly in 2020, where we have so few courtrooms available, and where even selecting a jury, uh, keeping all prospective members of the jury six feet apart, um, prioritizing courtroom resources for homicide trials, sexual assault trials, carjacking, robbery, um, has been really important to me, and I think to everyone in San Francisco. I know it's a goal that um, Chief Scott shares with me that we prioritize the most violent cases. And you've talked about a a new court you'd like to see for people who've been trafficked from Honduras and sell drugs here. Can you explain how that would work and if you've made any progress toward um, accomplishing that? Uh, To be clear, Heather, it's not limited to people from Honduras at all. It's a trafficking court in general, which would apply to victims of sex trafficking. I thought it was just drugs. No, no, no. Trafficking in general. We we have a lot of folks trafficked. Uh, Some of them are for uh, sex work. Some of them are for uh, work in the narcotics industry. And some are for work in, you know, corner stores and, 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 and fruit markets mm-hmm. uh, or industry. And it's an issue that I know uh, crosses in that regard all different walks of life. And we don't have the tools needed to address it in any of those ambits. And so the hope was, and, and this is something that came out of conversations that I had um, early in the year with uh, some judges, with some sex trafficking advocates, Um, and with a number of folks in the labor community about some of the issues they were seeing with labor trafficking to uh, develop a court that focuses specifically on trying to get people away from the grasp of those who've trafficked them without regard to the particular category of crime Mm -hmm. um, that led to their contact with the criminal justice system. Would this probably be on hold until after the pandemic to create that or? Yeah, we have not made a lot of progress on it. Um, It is something, you know, any new initiative in government tends to take a while. And this year, things are slower than usual. There's a lot of interest, uh, I think, from folks on on all sides. But the most important thing is to have a judge in a courtroom that can actually handle these cases with the attention that is needed to make sure the outcomes are successful. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure whether it's someone who has been trafficked for sex purposes or for any other purpose, that if they are sent to our um, trafficking court, once it exists, that we make sure to break the cycle of uh, you know, their connection to 
people who are trafficking them. And one of the problems, for example, with the money bail system, which is a different uh, conversation entirely, is that often people who are trafficked will be bailed out by their abusers or by their pimps, by their traffickers. Um, and they'll, instead of having jail or the criminal justice system play a role in enforcing that separation, instead, um, they're looked up on uh, the jail website, their abuser or trafficker can go bail them out and, and they're back uh, you know, working against their will uh, almost immediately. Wow. And so we really wow. need better interventions uh, across the board. And we need to make sure that before we launch an initiative like this, we have the resources for case management, for judicial attention um, necessary to ensure we're actually succeeding when we intervene. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. What do you think of City Attorney Dennis Herrera's idea to impose civil injunctions for drug dealers? And he's trying to restrict um, a few dozen from entering a 50-block um, area of the Tenderloin in South of Market. Look, we the city clearly needs all the help it can get in coming up with creative ways to address the problems in the Tenderloin, uh, particularly around the open-air drug use and drug sales. I'm, uh, I wish him well. I, I hope it works because obviously having more than a quarter of my cases uh, filed um, being drug sales cases isn't working. Um, and I'm not surprised about that. I mean, the the reality is the war on drugs has not worked anywhere in the country. It's cost us a trillion dollars or more just uh, at the federal level. And um, drugs are just as pure, just as accessible, and just as cheap as ever. Um, I think the the problem with the approach the state attorney is taking, and, and again, I hope I'm wrong because I want it to work, but it's not actually doing anything different than what my office has been doing for years. The stay away orders are already in place. Perhaps his attorneys will succeed in persuading judges to make those stay away orders broader geographically than my attorneys have. They'll be in front of different judges, so the judges may take a different view. Um, and the penalties for violating his injunction are pretty much identical to the penalties for violating our existing stay away orders. By definition, every single person on the city attorney's list is already facing felony charges my office filed. In many instances, they're facing multiple felony charges. And so threatening them with a misdemeanor charge for violating an injunction is unlikely to be a significant deterrent, even if the geographic area of the stay away order is broader. Now, the other issue um, that I've heard some folks, uh, I think was mentioned in your article covering this issue, was that it provides some civil remedies for um, seizing assets of people dealing drugs. And of course, that's an, an important deterrent for folks selling drugs to make money. But the problem is police already can and do seize any cash on suspected drug dealers every time they make an arrest. I have an attorney who works um, not full-time, but is dedicated to this issue, working on asset forfeiture to ensure that proceeds from drug sales do not go back to uh, drug tra traffickers, but rather get seized for the state asset forfeiture fund, some of which goes to victim services, some of which goes back into um, law enforcement budget, and some of which goes into the general fund. And it's not realistic to think that the folks involved in drug dealing in the tenderloin are going to have bank accounts mm -hmm. that we can go after, that the city attorney can go after. So I don't really see um, any added value from this approach 
But I sure hope uh, Dennis can succeed where others have failed. What do you think is needed for these OD numbers to go down and for us to not see so much misery on the sidewalks of the Tenderloin and South of Market? I'll give you three really concrete things we need. Um, We need safe consumption sites. That is the single thing that has been shown time and time again across the world to drastically decrease fatal overdoses. Safe consumption sites. Second, we need 24-7 treatment on demand so that people who are suffering from addiction or substance abuse can get help when they want it, when they need it. And right now that is not a reality in San Francisco. And the third thing on the law enforcement side is I need the San Francisco Police Department to bring me kilos, not crumbs. It costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,000 per by bust arrest in the Tenderloin. And it doesn't matter what tactics law enforcement takes once those cases are brought to us. You can look at the experiment that the U.S. attorney did last year about this time in the federal initiative in the Tenderloin, where they worked with San Francisco police and they filed criminal charges in federal court against dozens of folks accused of drug dealing in the Tenderloin. And virtually every single one of those people was deported. Forget sending them to prison, they were deported. And it didn't make one iota of difference on the ground in the Tenderloin. The next day, those corners were filled with people selling the same drugs for the same prices with the same risk of fatal consequences and the same tragedy unfolding on our streets in front of school children, in front of families, in front of business owners. So we could send people to prison for life for selling drugs. We can deport them. It's not going to make a difference if all we're getting from the police is crumbs, Mm -hmm. is a few pills, a few rocks, local, small level dealers. We need to interrupt the supply chain further upstream, and we need to make sure that we're interrupting the demand for drugs by providing help and safe consumption sites to folks who are consuming. Okay. What would you say your relationship is like with the San Francisco Police Department? I hear anecdotes from people who call um, police for something happening at their house, a burglary or whatever, and police officers say that they can't do anything because your office won't prosecute. We heard that when Gascon was district attorney too. Um, What would you tell officers who are telling people um, that they can't do anything because you won't do anything, basically? Well, let me start by saying I have a great relationship with Chief Scott, and we have regular meetings one-on-one. We also have regular command staff meetings where the entire police command staff meets with me and my executive team. Um, As far as the department as a whole, I think it's a more complicated question because the police department itself has lots of internal divisions and um, be very hard to speak uh, for the department as a whole uh, without uh, going to Chief Scott and letting him do that. <laughs> yeah. if, if he... He's been on this podcast, so he's had his chance. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but to the to the heart of your question, I think, Heather, um, we have a real problem in San Francisco with police officers telling crime victims that they don't want to do their job and pointing the finger at other agencies as an excuse for not doing their job. And as you said, it's not a new problem. It happened under George Gascon. It started happening um, with me being the excuse even before I took office, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Um, And, you know, it's a difficult thing because on the one hand, there's absolutely no question that police have a really difficult job and they don't always have the tools or the resources they need to do the job that we are asking them to do. And on the other hand, we all need them to do a better job. And we certainly need them to not point the fingers or refuse to do their job simply because they disagree with a particular policy of an elected official in San Francisco. 
But that's exactly what we're seeing. And I hear reports about it all day, every day. I'll tell you a funny story. Well, be funny if it weren't so serious. Mm-hmm. But um, back in March, one of my assistant district attorneys was on the street and witnessed a crime in progress. And she saw a police officer and walked over to him and said, excuse me, officer, there's a crime going on over there. Describe the details. And the officer said to her, I'm not going to bother leaving my, you know, they were having a cup of coffee on the corner. I'm not going to bother leaving and going over to investigate because the district attorney won't prosecute anyone. Now, he didn't know this, but he was speaking to someone who has been a district attorney and assistant <laughs> since Terrence Hallinan wow. was an officer. So this is someone who has prosecuted probably tens of thousands of cases in their day. Mm-hmm. And that sort of blatant disregard for their job and for their duty, and I don't think it is reflective of what every officer is doing, but enough are doing that, that it's really poisoning the relationship between the public, particularly people who are specifically asking for law enforcement intervention, who are victims of crime, who need help. And having police tell them they're not going to do their job is really demoralizing to San Francisco as a whole. And it's particularly problematic because it's so dishonest. Mm -hmm. I want to be really clear. I had a town hall last night, and the first question that I got from um, someone who called in was someone who had exactly the experience that you described, Heather. It was someone who had reported a burglary of their garage and who had had the police tell them they weren't going to bother investigating because my office won't prosecute. So let's look at the facts. We take action in approximately 80% of the burglary cases that the police present to us. That means we either file new criminal charges or we refer the case to probation or parole for a revocation in 80% of the cases that the police bring us. But here's the catch. We can't file charges. We can't violate probation or parole if the police don't do the investigation and present us with the case. So let's look at police clearance rates. Well, in Um, 2019, police did a much better job at clearing cases than they do in 2020. So let's take burglary, the example we're talking about. There's been a 25% decrease, 25% decrease citywide in police ability to clear burglary cases that are reported to them. Hmm. Now, I know COVID presents new challenges, but it's not limited to burglary, a category of crime that has gone up. Robbery, which is a category of crime, thankfully, which is uh, down by historic margins this year. It's down by over 22% since I took office. Robbery clearance rates are down 7%. So you've got nearly a quarter less robberies being reported, and yet 7% less uh, cases being solved. I can't prosecute the cases the police don't solve. Yeah. Um, your predecessor never filed charges against any police officers who were, who killed civilians. And I was wondering if you have um, an idea of when you'll have a decision in the outstanding case that your office still has, the Keita O'Neill case from 2018, when an uh, unarmed carjacking suspect was shot and killed by a police officer who was just four days into the job. You know, this is an area that was a really critical issue in the campaign. As you remember, it's one that has in many ways become even more a focus of national attention um, in the year 2020 in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. I wish that I could give you a concrete answer, Heather. Mm -hmm. And I am as frustrated as anybody by the slow pace of these cases moving forward. I will tell you that um, there are very real institutional uh, bureaucratic, 
and legal obstacles, not only to successfully prosecuting cases involving police use of force, but also to adequately and completely investigating them. Um, those are challenges that I've been working on. I have a weekly meeting with the head of my independent investigation bureau that handles these investigations uh, to try and put pressure on him and his team to move forward more quickly on the Keto O'Neill case and all of the other cases that are being investigated. And I share your frustration, um, at least the frustration implied in the question. Uh, and <laughs> the, Two uh, years later, yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, during the campaign, all of us talked about the need, all the candidates for DA talked about the need to make decisions within six months. And I know 2020 has not been a normal year, and I appreciate a little bit of leeway uh, given the challenges we faced, but we really need to be able to move more quickly in these cases. Let me give you one um, in the weeds, but important example of some of the limits that we face to investigating these cases. Um, and this goes back to some of your other questions about our relationship with the police as well. The district attorney's office is not a primary or lead investigating agency for the vast majority of cases we work on. The police department is, or the sheriff department, or the highway patrol, or the BART police. Um, our job is primarily to process the cases that are brought to us. That's what happens in well over 90% of our cases. And so our investigative resources are really limited. And it's not just a question of city budget or how many investigators we have on staff. It's a question of what the legal tools are that are available to district attorneys. And when it comes to doing investigations, we really only have two hard tools other than asking people to voluntarily share information with us, which by the way, doesn't work in cases of officer-involved shootings. Mm -hmm. um, our tools are, we can issue search warrants or arrest warrants if we have enough information to justify the issuance of that warrant and to get a judge to sign off on it. Or we can try to subpoena documents or witnesses to a grand jury. And since I took office, Heather, we have not had a single grand jury convened because of COVID, because of other limits on court resources. So one of my key investigative tools, not only for officer-involved shootings, but for moving traditional criminal cases forward, for doing other kinds of investigation in complex cases, has simply been off the table this entire year. It's frustrating, it's slowing us down, but I am committed as ever to moving forward in these cases and to communicating transparently what our decisions are as soon as we've made them. I also wanted to ask you about um, violent crime. There seems to be a sense among some people in San Francisco that you're not prosecuting violent crime to the fullest extent. And one example was um, a really horrific case that was um, just resolved a week or two ago, uh, the dismemberment case of an elderly Chinese man. It got a lot of attention in the Chinese press where his daughter pled guilty to um, desecrating her father's remains and his head was found in his own freezer. Pretty horrific scene. Um, and she was sentenced to no further jail time um, in this deal. And I know that that was not a popular decision among some people in the Chinese community. Um, how do you respond to the concern that you're not um, prosecuting violent crime to the fullest? Well, first of all, it's just not true. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. We take violent crime seriously. It is my priority. And I've been clear and consistent about my priority since before I was elected. Serious and violent crime are and must be the priority. It's a frustration to me, frankly, that such a high percentage of our cases um, are, are things like drug sales. As important as the drug, uh, drug issue is, 
homicides and sexual assaults are and always will be the priority for me. Um, I inherited a serious backlog of serious violent crimes. We had one case, for example, uh, and it's really an outlier in terms of the severity of the case. It was a quadruple murder, and it was five years old mm-hmm. when I took office and had not even been through a preliminary hearing. Wow. I remember that case, yeah. Yeah, I'm proud to say that we got that case through preliminary hearing, and, and now it's a significant step closer to trial. Um, I've done everything I can to make sure that my child and sexual assault teams and my homicide team are fully staffed, and we've kept their caseloads flat, even as caseloads in other parts of the office and other parts, uh, other DA's offices around the country skyrocket. It's simply not true that we don't take these crimes seriously. Mm -hmm. What is true is that no matter how horrific the facts of the case, we are bound by limits of law and evidence. And what sounds really dramatic in the press may not work in front of a jury or a judge. And it just depends on the quality of the investigation and the evidence that's presented to us. So I want to go back to the particular case you mentioned, because it was an unusually uh, devastating case in lots of ways. And um, you know, it's not just that it's a murder. It's not just that it's a case where um, the person who was directly harmed can never be brought back. And there's a gaping hole in a community and in a family that will never be filled. Mm-hmm. All that is true. And And that's what's so particularly troubling about homicide cases in general. But in this case, it was family-on-family crime. The people that we accused of committing this murder were the daughter and son-in-law of the victim. And the other problem with this case, just from a pure litigation standpoint, was the medical examiner that performed the autopsy on the remains could not give us a cause of death. They could not say what had caused the death. And so... When you look at the outcome of this case, of course, some members of the family and some members of the Chinese community are upset and frustrated. Anybody would be upset and frustrated after the loss of a loved one. After the loss of a loved one in this particularly gruesome interfamily dynamic. And anyone would be frustrated at the real lack of evidence that was collected and presented to my office to prosecute the case. But I think what's particularly telling about the decision that was made is that the probation department, the investigating sergeant from the homicide division in the police department, and the judge all agreed that this was an appropriate outcome for the case, given the limits. Those are the folks who have expertise in litigation and evidence, who understand the challenges of trying to prove a murder to a jury without a cause of death from the medical examiner. Those are the folks who look at evidence and pre-sentence reports and police reports all day, every day. And every single one of those actors said that they thought this was an appropriate outcome. Okay. And coming up on your year anniversary in January, um, what would you like to be judged on? What do you think are the metrics that San Francisco should use in determining how good of a job you are doing? Well, I, you know, I'd love to take credit for the fact that crime rates are down by about 25%. Um, I don't think it would be fair or honest of me to take credit for that uh, <laughs> any more than I think it's fair or honest for people to blame me for those couple categories of crime that have gone up. Mm-hmm. We're living through an unprecedented year. And I think the reality is um, San Francisco as a whole and our office uh, have navigated the challenges remarkably well. And, you know, I'm the kind of person who's never satisfied. We've never, you know, we've nowhere nearly done enough to fulfill my campaign promises in key areas around um, sexual assault, around uh, victims' rights, around 
racial disparities in the criminal justice system around expanding diversion opportunities and mental health care. So there is a tremendous amount of work to do. But as I look back at my first uh, year in office, and I think about the absolute, absolutely unprecedented challenges we faced and the fact that we were able to navigate those uh, as an office and as a city with far fewer um, deaths from COVID than other big cities and with a far bigger decline in crime rates than you see in most other big cities. I think we have a lot to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I know you're a very busy person, so I will let you go, but I really appreciate you joining me today. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Heather. We should do it more often. Yes, Brad, next time. <laughs> okay, thanks a Take lot. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you to District Attorney Chase Bodine for joining me today, to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and to you for listening.